The scripture for today's sermon comes from Jude 1, verses 5 through 11. The word of God speaks to us like this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. This is the very word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Julie. Hey, you can grab a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Bryce Johnson. I am a pastoral resident here. Um, And let me go ahead and just acknowledge up top, that is a heavy text, is it not? Uh, And... uh, The preaching team was like, hey, you think about planning a church one day? Why don't you go take this passage? Good luck, right? Here's here's practice. Um, Hey, let let me acknowledge it's a heavy text. Um, And if you're in here and uh, maybe you come from a background where all you heard was judgment or you're not a believer in Jesus um, and you're like, great, I show up and of course they talk about judgment. Um, Man, one, uh, we are here for you. I I hope that coming out of the sermon, uh, you would actually see the goodness of God in this. Um, and, and two, just doing a lot of work, would you just hang tight with us? And so let me go ahead and pray uh, for us, and I ask that you pray for me, um, and then we'll jump right in, all right? Um, Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you, Lord, that your word is always good and always true, um, and even hard texts like this. Um, and so, God, I pray Um, Lord, would you speak to us? God, would you confront us where we need to be confronted? Would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Um, And Lord, above all, would Jesus be glorified? To your son's name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, well, so one of my favorite movies, in fact, my favorite movie of all time, uh, is Lion King, all right? Uh, Now, not not the one that came out a few years ago, not with the weird CGI and Beyonce and Childish Gambino, like, like the OG, original Lion King with, uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas as the voice of young Simba, um, this fantastic soundtrack with Elton John, and, and it was just such a good, such a good movie, right? And one of the, one of the scenes that, that always stuck out to me was early on in the movie, like uh, one of the first scenes, it's Mufasa, who's the father lion, he's showing his son, Simba, um, the kingdom, right? And he says, everything the light touches is our kingdom. Um, and, and he's showing him, and Simba points out, and he says, well, what about that shadowy place over there? Mufasa says, well, you must never go there. That's beyond our borders, right? And, and he says, you must not go there because that's not part of what we're supposed to do. He, he issues a warning. And what we know is that Simba 
uh, goes there anyway, largely because of the influence of his wicked uncle Scar. But he, Simba goes to where he's not supposed to go. He takes his best friend Nala and Zazu, uh, and they show up there. It's an elephant graveyard. And very soon, the hyenas, three hyenas, just jump upon them, right? And they're looking for a, a lion cub sandwich, and, and things look bleak, things look hard. And right when it feels like hope is lost, <coughs> Mufasa rolls up, right? Which Main rolling, just a giant roar, right? He, he shows up, he quells the hyenas, uh, and he scatters them, uh, right? And it's this incredible scene. And the scene always stood out to me, not just because Mufasa saves Simba, but because of the ferocity with which Mufasa shows up to protect the cubs and, and, and the animals that he loved, right? There, there's a, the, you can almost see how they capture it in the animation. There, there, there's, there's anger, there's love, there, there's just so much going on there. It was an early lesson that love ferociously protects what it finds precious. Love ferociously protects what it finds precious. And this morning, our text is actually a testimony to God's love and commitment to us. Now, last week, Chad opened us up in uh, Jude by reminding us that the predominant theme that we find in Jude is love, is God's love. And Jude is writing to a bunch of Christians, and, and he, he goes, hey, I wanted to write about this the amazing salvation that we have, but something has come up, and, and, and I, I need to change the tune a little bit, because there was an alarming issue going on. There were people in the church who had rejected Jesus but not just that, they were actually leading other people astray as well. And so listen, he wasn't saying, hey, there's, there's people outside of the church, the, the culture at large um, that, that, that are trying to lead you astray. He's not even saying, hey, there were people who were amongst us, but now they've left, and let's look at the, these folks who've left and look at their wickedness. He's saying, hey, within our midst, within our very four walls, They've crept in unnoticed, he says in verse 4. He says the, the danger is there, meaning that it wasn't even immediately obvious who they were. So there's a danger within, and, and maybe that's the most dangerous danger, right? It's, it's the danger within, the danger that you're not um, expecting. There are people who claim the name of Jesus and sat in the worship service and sang the same songs and perhaps partook of the table with everyone else and maybe led in various ways but through their actions and their influence, they're actually leading people away from truth. And this morning, this morning what we're going to see is God roar onto the scene with ferocity. And we're going to see his love and his commitment to us by way of his threatening grace. This passage warns God's judgment against those who would reject him. And it's a very sobering passage. But what we're going to see in our time this morning is that God's threat of judgment is actually his good grace to us. God's threat of judgment is actually his good grace to us. And so we're going to do that by answering three questions. One, what is the threat to the church? Two, why is the threat so dangerous? And four, how is God's judgment good? What is the threat? Why is the threat so dangerous? And how is God's judgment good? Or how is it grace? So first, what is the threat? We started this last week. The threat was there was, there was teaching or this notion that you could basically do whatever you wanted, right? Because, because there was enough grace for that. In other words, that since salvation didn't come from obedience to the law, 
Since salvation didn't come from obedience to law, no obedience was actually needed because Jesus was all about grace. And so they were perverting this grace of God and distorting it into something that it wasn't, distorting it into something that gave you license to do whatever you wanted to do, and especially in regards to sexual activity. In fact, the, the, what they said was that the more you pursued pleasure and the more you experienced your sensuality, then the more you were revealing the freedom that you had in Christ. Be who you are because God is a God of grace. And they were perverting grace. Because grace wasn't given so that we could disobey more. It's given to empower us to obey. But they were using it as a license to do whatever they wanted. And moreover, they were denying the lordship of Jesus. Not, not primarily in what they uh, believed, right, or, or, or intellectually, but in how they lived. In other words, Jesus doesn't care how I live, and so he doesn't have any say in how I live. All Jesus cares about is my soul, and he will save my soul to heaven one day. Um, and, but for right now, I can do what I want with my body. They denied allowing him to be Lord over every sphere of their life, saying, well, Jesus doesn't really care about how you live. He just cares that your soul goes to heaven. And in doing so, they denied Jesus as the master to whom we all submit to. And if, if there are threads of that that sound familiar, it's because we face similar temptations today, don't we? We're increasingly being sold the idea, even from people who would call themselves Christian, even from people within our own camp, that what God really wants is just your heart. And so what you do with your body, that's, that's not as important. We're being even told that trying to live in obedience to Jesus and his word, well, that's actually legalism, that no one wants to slip into legalism. That you can live however you want to please, do whatever you want to do. You do you, boo-boo, because Jesus just wants you to be happy and fulfilled. And listen, Jesus does want you to be happy and fulfilled. But he knows that you'll be most happy and fulfilled in him. In fact, that's the only way that you'll be happy and fulfilled. And so what these false teachers were doing was they were diminishing Jesus. They were, they were denying his divinity. They were diminishing his uh, authority, his holiness. They were twisting his character, and they subverted his teaching and rejected his authority. And in doing so, they created their own gospel, and they followed their own gospel. And in fact, this very threat to subvert God's word, it's always been present. It didn't just pop up in Jude's church around 30 years after Jesus went up into heaven. There has always been people amongst God's people, there has always been those amongst God's people who reject God's word and live as they want to live. And God brought judgment upon them. And to, to drive this home, to show this, Jude actually gives several examples from, from the Old Testament and from Jewish literature to illustrate this point. And so we're going to look at those real quick. Uh, Israel and in the wilderness, angels rebelling, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And so if you have copy of the scripture, we're in Jude, it's just one chapter, it's a short chapter, um, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serving as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. All right, so first uh, Jude brings up Israel, uh, Jesus saving Israel out of Egypt. Now you might be in here and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, Bryce, I've, I've read my Bible, or I've read some of my Bible, and I know that Jesus doesn't show up until Matthew, which is two-thirds of the way through the Bible, right? Like Jesus doesn't show up until Matthew, um, so, and I've read Exodus, and it was actually a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke and the angel of the Lord. Like, and you're absolutely right. What Jude is showing us is what Jesus showed his disciples after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And he showed, in fact, how all, he's present in all of the Old Testament. He's everywhere. And he shows us, in fact, how we should read our Old Testaments, how we should read it in view of Jesus and his presence um, and his prediction. That's free. That's for another time. That's another sermon. But Israel was saved out of slavery in Egypt. And they, and they were saved through incredible miracles, through the mighty hand of God, through, through plagues against Egypt and, and the great displays of God's power. They were standing in front of the Red Sea and God split it and let them walk through dry land. They were hungry and God literally gave them bread from heaven to feed them. They had experienced so tangibly and powerfully God's grace and presence. And yet on the edge of the promised land, they get to where they're supposed to go. And they look out and they say, man, I don't know. There's some tall guys there. I don't think we can take it. They, they, they get there and they disbelieve God. They disbelieve that God can actually get them into the land of promise. They continuously rebelled. Imagine, imagine they had experienced God's grace and mercy in ways that, that I think all of us would admit that we'd love to experience it that way in such profound ways, and yet they still disbelieved his word. And how easy is it for us, right, to, to look at Israel and be like, man, what a bunch of idiots. Like, y'all just ate bread that showed up on the ground miraculously. How are you disbelieving? And yet, and yet, how often do we disbelieve God and disbelieve his promises? We who have experienced our own exodus out of slavery to sin and shame and death and we give a new life, how often do we look at our own situations and, and get anxious or worry or doubt that God who has sustained us thus far will continue to sustain us? Numbers 4, 14 tells us that because of the unbelief of Israel, because of their unbelief, they weren't even permitted to go to enter the promised land. None of that generation, not even Moses. A whole generation died off before they were able to walk into the land of promise. They had tasted the love and grace and salvation of God, and yet left them unchanged. I wonder if any of us in this room can relate. We've experienced God's amazing salvation. We've, we've seen him bring resurrection life, and yet there remains so much unbelief and doubt. Jude brings up two more stories. Two more stories which are 
hang with me a bit bizarre, but actually drive home similar points, right? So the first is the story of angels rebelling. At some point in time, we're, we're not told exactly when, whether it's, it's at creation or right after, or maybe it's, it's a story that, that's going on in Genesis 6. At some point, God in love had created some proper limitations for these beings, angels, right? These magnificent beings, but he created proper, some certain limitations, and they were designed for a purpose, and at some point, the angels willfully rebelled against God's design. They, they saw what he created, and they said, we want more, and they rebelled. And then he points us to Sodom and Gomorrah, which maybe you've heard a lot of. There's a lot going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, um, a lot of wickedness. Ezekiel tells us that, that they were filled with pride, um, and, and they had so much that they willfully rejected the poor and needy among them. And Genesis talks, uh, hints at lack of hospitality amongst their sins, and, but also sexual deviance. And, and that seems to be what Judah's referencing. And just as the, God had created proper limitations for the angels, he has created proper limitations for humans created in his image especially when it comes to things like our sexuality and gender and marriage because we've been designed for a purpose. And Jude is saying that just as God punished sexual sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, he will bring judgment against sexual sin today. Because when we rebel against God's created order, God actually judges our rebellion. Just like the characters of old, the people in Jude's church were rejecting God's authority they're pursuing their passions, arrogantly talking about what they didn't know. And then he brings the three more characters, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And the point for all of them is the same. All these characters rejected God, rejected his authority, rejected his word, and ultimately led God's people astray as well. And so that right there is a threat. The threat is that we would follow in the steps of Israel, of unbelieving Israel, of the fallen angels, of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Cain, of Balaam, and Korah rejecting God's word and pursuing our sinful desires, which leads us to our second question. Why is the threat so dangerous? Why is the threat so dangerous that, that God pronounces judgment? Well, let's keep reading verse 8 of Jude. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The false teachers of Jude's church were following their own flesh, and, and they've rejected Jesus' authority, and they start talking arrogantly about things that they don't even know anything about. Um, and so to illustrate this, Jude references a story that, that's not in our Old Testament. Um, it's in a text called The Assumption of Moses, and, and, and he does it in the way that a preacher might reference uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Because we know preachers love C.S. Lewis and love quoting uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so he uses it as an example. And, and it's confusing to our context, but, but the story is that the devil is arguing with the archangel Michael over the body of Moses, right? So there's a lot going on there. But Michael is the archangel, an archangel, like, like a chief angel, right? He's, he's glorious, and he's powerful, and beautiful, and strong. And the point that he's making is even Michael the archangel, as beautiful, and glorious, and powerful, and wonderful as he is, 
He acted in a humble way, letting God have the final word. And Jude says that unlike Michael, these people who have crept in talk arrogantly about things that they don't even know or understand. And what they do understand, mainly the pursuit of their own pleasure, he says like animals, it actually destroys them. And so all this begs the question, what's the big deal here, right? Why is rejecting God's word and why is rejecting God's authority so bad that God would bring judgment? Is it because God is some cosmic killjoy out to snatch up any pleasure you might have? Is it because he's, he's a control freak with too much power? Is, is, it, is it because he's petty and, and so insecure about his own power that, that he makes people swear allegiance to him? And, and before we rush past that, let me ask, do we ever feel this way? Do we ever feel this way? Do we ever feel like God is just being overly harsh for some minor infractions? If I'm being honest, I've had seasons in my life where I have felt that. Thinking, God, I, what's the big deal if this person is a moral, good person who loves his family and is a faithful member of society but doesn't follow Jesus? God, God why, do you, why, why do you care so much about that? God, why do you care so much about what I do with my sex life? God, why do you care so much about how I live and whether I live for myself or not or centered around me and my comfort and what feels good. And it's because God threatens judgment because the consequence of continuing to walk in rebellion is so dangerous. God threatens judgment because the consequence of continuing to walk in rebellion is so dangerous. Listen, not the consequence from God, but the consequence of continuing in the path of sin. My daughter, Ellery, is two now, and she is so sweet and so much fun. She's a bundle of joy, but she's also incredibly independent right now, right? She just wants to do everything on her own. Um, And one of the things that we've tried to teach her from a young age is that whenever you get to the road, you always hold mama's hands or, or, or dad's hand. Right? Like you never run in on your own. So whether you're crossing the street, what, even if we're just walking in the road, um, because left to her own devices, she'll bolt. Right? She'll, she'll run. She um, does not uh, look the most coordinated, um, and she is certainly not the fastest. Uh, but like Luka Doncic, she is deceptively quick. And if you didn't understand that reference, tune into TNT tonight at 7 p.m., to watch the Dallas Mavericks. He does not look like he could play basketball, but he's phenomenal. We, we were at the park a few weeks ago, and I, and, and I took Ellery out of the car seat, and I, I put her down, and I went to reach to get something out of the car, and she bolted into the street. And in that moment, I yelled at her. I yelled at her, I said, stop! Stop, Ellery, don't go any further. Don't take one more step. Come back. Now, imagine if in that moment she stopped and turned around and said, Dad, you're being really negative right now. I can't handle this pettiness. I can't handle you when you're like this. Dad, what's the big deal? That'd be ludicrous, right? Be ludicrous, one, because she's two years old and doesn't know half those words, but two... It's because she doesn't understand the imminent threat that's in front of her. 
In that moment, I shouted and yelled at my daughter things that I try not to do normally, but I shouted and yelled at my daughter because I knew the consequence of her taking just one more step into the street. Just one more step was danger. If she took one more step, she would get hurt and maybe worse. But Ellery still doesn't fully understand that. She doesn't, she doesn't understand that. And I, here's the thing, I love her too much to let her learn that lesson experientially. I love her too much for that. And so many of us are like a toddler running into oncoming traffic when it comes to sin because we don't even understand the gravity and danger that we're certainly headed towards. We think we're running towards freedom. Look at how Jude describes the trajectory of rebellion in verse 11. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now, I, I don't know if you see it, but, but I, I highlighted it in my text. There's, you see a trajectory there. They, they, he says, they walked in the way of Cain, right? And the next verb that he uses is, and they abandoned themselves. And then the next verb is, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. There's a trajectory there that we see each step moves further and further into danger to the ultimate end of death. And that's the danger for us who continue rejecting God's word and rejecting God's authority, living as we wish. But like a child, we continue on not seeing the consequence of our actions. As I, as I hit my mid-30s, I can't tell you how many marriages I've seen, weddings I've been to that have imploded because sin was left unchecked because a husband's pornography issue was never addressed. It was just, it was just a small sin. It'll go away. Or, or because the wife welcomed the flattering attention of someone and just continued in it. See, left unchecked, these issues grew and grew and grew until it destroyed their marriage. It's not just in marriage, right? It's, just, it's in life when people do what they want. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it's the story of what happens? It's when everyone does what they want. When there's no ruler, everyone is their own authority, chaos happens. See, when we reject parts of the Bible as authoritative, make no mistake, we inevitably let something else become our authority. Something else becomes authoritative in our lives. Another authority will call the shots, and we become slaves to that. We think we're free, but we become slaves to that. We let, we let social media influencers become our authority, or our desires become our authority, or our comfort, or our greed, or Tucker Carlson, or MSNBC, or our spouses, or our kids, and if we're not actively letting God's word search us, if we're not conforming all of our lives and our thinking and our doing to what scripture would have for us, we're inevitably going to listen to another voice that's going to lead us to destruction. And I think some of us have been walking in rejection of God's word for so long that we don't even realize it. It sounds sort of like it. It sounds good. We don't even realize that we're walking in rejection. We don't realize that we've allowed another king who's not King Jesus sit on the throne of our hearts and we've become numb to the voice of Jesus. Friends, do you hear his voice this morning? 
See, the da- and the danger is not just that false things are out there, that we might get caught up in it. The danger is that our, our own hearts want it. The danger is that our heart is prone to go after false things. 2 Timothy 4 talks about that, that we're prone to find teachers and prone to find information or theology or whatever or authority that will tell us what we already want to hear, right? We, we'll call it confirmation bias in, in some senses. We follow that because we want to believe what feels right to us because we're pretty convinced that we, we, we know what's right. We know it's good because we're our own authority. See, the danger is inside because ultimately we don't see God's authority as good and life-giving. We want to pick and choose what we believe about God. And, and it's, it's evident in how we talk about God, isn't it? H- have you ever said, well, I, I can't, I can never believe in a God that would dot, dot, dot. Or, or I know the Bible says this, but, but, but how I see it or the way I feel it or experience it, but in my mind, we make our faith subjective. And like Jude 8, we reject authority for the sake of following our own hearts. Because that's the mantra of the age, isn't it? Follow your own hearts. And we end up thinking either that God doesn't care what we do, that we can do whatever we want, maybe ask for forgiveness one day, or we think that we know better than God, and we know better than his word, and so we decide what we want to follow. While he was reading his Bible, um, early, uh, I was about to say church father, that's not true, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, draft, uh, you know, wrote the Declaration of Independence. As he was reading his Bible, he came upon parts of the Bible that he really liked and there were some parts that he really didn't like, or some parts that didn't fit into his worldview. He was a naturalist, and so, so he really loved Jesus' moral teachings, but he rejected the supernatural. Um, he rejected uh, anything that smacked of heaven or hell or things like that. And so what Thomas Jefferson did was he took his Bible, and he took a razor, and he cut out portions of, of the Bible that he liked, He cut them out, and then he glued them into another notebook. And what he did was he created his own Bible. It's called the Jefferson Bible. You can look it up. And so in it, he was like, well, I really like the Sermon on the Mount, so so that's in there. But he didn't like the teaching on Jesus' divinity, so left that part out. He really liked some of Jesus' moral teachings, but, but didn't like when Jesus talked about hell, and so left that out. And I don't think anyone in here would necessarily take a razor to their Bible, right? Because a lot of us grew up in church and we knew that's a big no-no. But I wonder how many of us do this functionally. How many of us look at certain parts of Scripture and we think, oh, man, that's good. Yes, I will stay in that. This, I don't know about that. I'm just going to ignore it. Or I'm going to flat out disobey it. I mean, just... What do our quiet times look like if, if, if I could lay that on the table? Do, do we spend all our quiet time in, in certain parts of scriptures or, or the same sections, but, but never, never visit the prophets or Leviticus or certain parts of scripture? Do we downplay certain parts of the Bible when, when it talks about things that 
like, like sexuality or generosity or Sabbath rest. See, we create a gospel created in our own image when we reject God-given authority. And it will actually destroy us because obedience to God's word actually brings life. That's why if you've ever read the Psalms, David says crazy things like, I love your law, O Lord, because it brings me joy. There is life there. He says things like that, and I think sometimes we're like, okay, David, were were you writing this because you knew, you know, like the church leader was looking over your shoulder? No, but it's because David actually felt this and walked in and realized it. He loves God's law and, 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 and how it shaped him because walking in the way of the Lord actually brought life. But we've been trained by the influences in our lives and we've been trained by our own deceptive hearts to believe like Adam and Eve in the garden that actually more satisfaction and life can be found outside of the voice of Jesus. Friends, Jesus does want you to be happy and fulfilled, I promise you, but that only happens fully in him. And listen, when something threatens the actual happiness and fulfillment of God's people, God brings judgment, which brings me to my last point. How is God's judgment good? See, God's judgment is actually his grace to us. And for so many of us, we've, we've grown up in an anemic teaching on God's love that elevates the positive sides of God's love, right? God becomes like this cosmic Barney the dinosaur, right? He's, he's just, he's imaginary, except if you really believe in him, you can see in him, and, and he sings songs and is all about kindness. But God is love, scripture says. His very essence and core is love, but for someone truly to be loving, think about this with me, there's also got to be an aspect of hate to that. And, and hear me. If you love peace, then you will hate violence. Right? If you love children, then you will hate sexual abuse done to kids. If you love God's vision for diversity, you will hate racism. If you love the dignity of women, you will hate pornography. If you love good food, you will hate Subway. God is love, and therefore he is opposed to sin and evil. Man, I, that, that felt like that. That might have touched some nerves. God hates what hurts us. See, Ellery thinks she knows what being safe is. Ellery thinks she knows what fun is. And just like she doesn't comprehend the danger around her, we don't either when we choose to follow our own authority. Scott Sauls is a pastor, and and he says it this way. He says, for love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. If there's no judgment, then there's no hope for a slave, a rape victim, a child who's been abused or bullied, or people who've been slandered or robbed of their dignity stolen, or had their dignity stolen. If nobody's called to account before a cosmic judgment seat for violence and oppression, then the victims will never see justice. We need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids, who will once and for all remove bullies and perpetrators of evil from his playground. See, God's opposition to that which brings us destruction is actually a sign of his good character. 
It's actually a sign of his love. He's a good king who puts out all other false kings that seek to destroy us. He's a good king who actually loves us, and because he loves us, he will remove threats from our lives. See, his judgment is on that which would destroy us. We love the great promises of God's blessings, don't we? We, we love verses like, I will never leave you or forsake you. We love verses like, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for, plans for good and plans for blessing. Um, that God works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. And, and, and we, we put them on t-shirts and we put them on our Instagram uh, pictures. And, and we, we make them our life verse. But then we, we look at passages like the one this morning, we, we, we don't know how to reconcile that, right? We, we don't know what to do with passages about judgment because we've gorged ourselves on just one aspect of God's love, and we don't even recognize how God's threat of judgment is actually love. And if that sounds confusing, think about the story of Ellery running into the street, of Ellery running to the street. As she, as she gets older and maybe comprehends my words a little bit more, I can give her one of two promises, right? I can give her one or two promises. The first promise being, Ellery, I promise you that if you hold my hand, if you hold Dad's hand, and don't let go, and stay with me, and we look side to side as we cross the street, I promise you the incredible gift, the incredible blessing of a playground and a swing and that will push you mindlessly on the swing for 30 minutes. But I'll also give her a second promise. And the second promise is, Ellery, I promise you that if you don't hold Dada's hand and if you run into the street, that you will certainly get hurt, that something bad will happen, right? that you will feel pain. I promise you, you'll get hurt. And those two promises, they sound so different, don't they? In fact, they feel different. And yet, the purpose of those two promises, they're both the same. It's to keep my daughter safe and alive and with me. That's why God's judgment is his good grace to us. I don't stop at just the promise of the playground. I don't just give her the carrot. There's aspects of the stick because the consequence of her disobeying and choosing her own path is too great. I also have to give her the grace of the threat. So friends, what's the answer this morning? What's the answer for us? Is it, is it to try really hard and make sure we obey Jesus' voice and, and do all the things that he commanded us? Is God's threat of judgment there to scare us, to whip us into shape into more, as moral people? Friends, where else do we see the love of God and the judgment of God? Where else do we see the love of God in the judgment of God? It's in the cross, right? It's in the cross. In the cross of Jesus, we see the judgment of God against sin. We see the judgment of God against sin, but it's not against Jesus' sin. See, sin actually leads to death. See, sin will always lead to death, but it'll either lead to your death or Jesus' death. The cross absorbs the judgment of sin for us, for those who have put their faith 
and their hope in Jesus. Those who have hidden their lives in him. For those whose Lord and master is Jesus, the cross is a resounding cry of God's love. Because on the cross, Jesus willingly took the judgment I deserved in my place for my sins. On the cross, Jesus was plunged into gloomy darkness, and the full weight of the justice I deserved was infinitely poured out upon him and absorbed by Jesus so that you and I could have life. And so hear me. We don't have to be afraid of God's warning of judgment. It does not have to make us scared because it's actually a testament. Because it's actually a cry, a display of his love for us. Friends, would we take, this, take stock of our lives this morning to see where we may be rejecting Jesus and his word and his authority in our lives? To see where would we heed the loving warning of our God and turn to the finished work of Jesus? Let's pray.